From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. We're listening to Elliot Goldenthal's score for the new Gloria Steinem biopic, The Glorious. It stars Julianne Moore and Alicia Vikander. Julie Tamer directed and co-wrote the screenplay. Our critics Angie Hahn and Amy Nicholson will review it. Our John Horn will interview Tamer later this hour. Our critics also review Woody Allen's romantic comedy, A Rainy Day in New York, starring Timothy Chalamet, Elle Fanning, and Selena Gomez. And the documentary, Totally Under Control, focuses on the government's response to the COVID-19 outbreak. It's Film Week, right after NPR News on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us today. And I'm joined this week by critics Amy Nicholson, who film critic for KPCC, film writer for the New York Times, and host of the podcast Unspooled and the podcast miniseries Zoom. Angie Hahn criticizes film for us here on Film Week and is also deputy entertainment editor at Mashable. We begin with the movie The Glorious, uh, directed by Julie Taymor, who's uh, known quite well for her stage productions like The Lion King. Here she co-wrote the screenplay as well as directed the film The Glorious that stars Julianne Moore, Alicia Vikander, and uh, Janelle Monet. Uh, uh, the Glorious. Amy, what'd you think? Yeah, I mean, fans of Julie Taymor know that she brings a lot of a theatrical bent to her films. Uh, this one, she doesn't quite as much, but she does do the interesting trick of casting the story of uh, Gloria Steinem with several stars. Both Alicia Vikander and Julian Moore both play Gloria Steinem at different parts of her life. And then there's two other Glorias on top of that from when she's a younger child. Beyond that, this is a fairly straightforward movie for Julie Taymor. You know, it, it's the kind of biopic that just goes through all the major hits. You know, um, Gloria Steinem's childhood, she had a really flaky father that she hero-worshipped and a mother who she didn't understand the uh, how much she contributed to the family. It gets into her young trip to India. It gets into her years as, as a journalist to launching Ms. Magazine. And then, of course, to Gloria's, you know, gradual and pretty reluctant ascent to becoming the face of the feminist movement. What really stuck out to me on this watch, though, that I have been thinking about ever since I saw this film at Sundance and then saw it again recently, is what made Gloria Steinem strong. And I think that as basic as you might think this biopic is, uh, Julie Tamar really does get into that. You get to see how her years as a journalist made her a listener first, and that really Gloria Steinem's strength was in listening, and that when she becomes a speaker, it's a little bit clumsy. And then what I really admire about the film is... 
you know, Gloria Steinem herself, I, I called her like a reluctant face of the feminist movement. She didn't really want to have that role. She wanted to share the spotlight. And the film itself does then, even with four Glorias as Gloria, try to give the spotlight to people like Janelle Monet, who plays Dorothy Pittman Hughes, Bette Midler's here as Bella Abzug. Lorraine Toussaint is playing Florence Kennedy, who's a figure I wasn't even aware of. And I was so happy to see uh, like her show up in this film. You've also got Wilma Mankiller, Dor- Dolores Huerta. So I appreciate everything that... Julie Tamor is trying to do and really showing this this whole full story of the feminist movement, even if it is a little bit standardly done. The Glorias is the film that we're talking about, portraying the life of Gloria Steinem. I wonder about having the different Glorias, you know, different ages and the like. Sometimes in uh, a biopic, it can be a little challenging because in a sense you get emotionally attached to a particular actor playing a particular period uh, of uh, the protagonist's life. And did you have any trouble shifting with the actors in this, Amy? Well, I mean, of course, you're just really excited to see Julianne Moore come in and do and do the role as the film. I think what you do do with the film a little bit here, though, is there's this metaphor of a bus and that all of the glorious take turns riding the bus and that on this bus, which you kind of start to feel like is like a metaphor for her progress as a person or where she wants to go in life. They'll sit next to each other or lean their heads on each other or tell each other what they should have said when they were young or what what it would have been more okay to say. And so I appreciate a biopic that lets you see the characters grow from within by having them interact. The film is The Glorias, starring Julianne Moore, Alicia Vikander, uh, Monica Sanchez, Janelle Monet, Julie Taymor, the director and co-screenwriter with Sarah Rule. It's based on Gloria Steinem's memoir, My Life on the Road. It's rated R, and you can see it on Amazon Prime Video, also on Vudu and Fandango Now's on-demand platforms. And later this hour, KPCC's John Horn interviews Julie Taymor and talks with her about the making of The Glorias. Next, the documentary Time, which follows Sybil Fox Richardson as she fights for the release of her husband, who's in the midst of a 60-year prison term. Garrett Bradley, the director of Time, Angie. Yeah, so as you said, it's a documentary about Sybil, and while her husband is in prison, she is also raising their six sons, and it's also worth noting that the armed robbery, they committed it together in 1997, and Sybil herself was imprisoned for about three years, but then since she got out, she's been out of prison and taking care of these kids. So it combines home mo- home movies, mostly Sybil taping herself and her kids to show Rob with more recent footage of her efforts to get Rob out of prison and as well as her day-to-day life at, at on her job as a used car at a used car dealership or kind of everyday interactions with her kids who are now teenagers or young adults stuff like that and it's all done in black and white with this great piano score that gives it a really um i don't know if classical is the right word but it it gives it a feeling like it's old and new at the same time which is perfect for this movie because it's very much about the passage of time and and it kind of jumps back and forth in the chronology and i love the footage of the old days it almost reminds me of uh, richard linklater's boyhood and how they capture these intimate little moments that make up an entire life uh, and and then what that really does is change and further the conversation about mass incarceration in America. Understandably, so much of that 
conversation is focused on the people who are in prison, but time is a really powerful reminder that when you lock someone away, you're not just punishing that one person, you're also wreaking havoc on the lives of the people that depend on them, the people who love them, the people that care about them, the community around them, and taking time away from those people as well, and that you'll never get it back. And that's just, that's what really just hits you over and over as you're watching this movie. I mean, in the present day, her tireless devotion to her husband is admirable, but it's also really sad because you realize it shouldn't have to be. What's being asked of her is uh, more than any one family should have to bear. So it does have political points to make, but it makes them by, but it makes them through this really kind of formally exciting documentary that helps you to really get into the everyday lives of these people and come out the other side with a true understanding of what it means to lock someone away for 60 years, what you're really doing to that person, what you're really asking of them. And what are the grounds on, on which she's trying to get her husband released earlier? They actually don't go into it that much. I just know that, and I guess I should have looked it up, but they just kind of, you see lots of footage of her calling different lawyers and trying to, and checking again and again to see if he can get early release. The film is Time. It's a documentary rated PG-13, directed by Garrett Bradley, focusing on Sybil Fox Richardson and her husband, Rob. The documentary is on Amazon Prime Video. Yellow Rose is set uh, in uh, Texas. The film is directed by Diane Paragas, who co-wrote the screenplay. And Yellow Rose stars Ava Noblezada. Angie, tell us about uh, this drama. I would love to. So this is a drama about an undocumented teenager who dreams of becoming a country music singer-songwriter. And then when her mom is deported, Rose, that's her name, has to find her own way forward in the U.S. or join her mom back in the Philippines. And it feels like such a quintessentially American tale, but also at the same time like a story we haven't seen before, because obviously the aspiring artist formula is very familiar and kind of a reliable crowd pleaser. But the undocumented immigrant angle adds a fresh angle adds a fresh perspective to it and makes it timely and you get a sense of what it's like for rose and her mom to live with this fear from day to day there's a really heartbreaking scene where she uh, meets another undocumented immigrant and asks him aren't you scared and he just kind of shrugs you get used to it but at the same time uh, the writer director does not prioritize the political themes and messaging over the characters so it doesn't feel preachy it just feels like we're getting a look into the lived reality of this girl's life and it's really easy to root for her because Ava Noblezada who's a Broadway actor is completely winning as Rose she has this sweet shy innocence that comes through but also incredible resilience as she goes through one ordeal after another and the film ends up being really warm-hearted without shying away from the very real danger and sadness hanging over her life and I should also add that in addition to uh, Eva Noblezada, it also stars Dale Watson, who's a country star, playing himself as her mentor, and Leah Salonga as an aunt who briefly takes her in, has a great cast. And with a cast like that, it shouldn't come as any surprise that the music is also really good. So you an anticipate, obvious comparison. You anticipate Sorry, my next question. I was going to ask, is the music good? But that's great. It is. <laughs> the music is really good. I think an obvious comparison would be something like Wild Rose. Obviously, the central arc is kind of different, but it shares the same authentic passion for country music from the perspective of uh, someone who's a bit of an outsider and gets into what that kind of music can mean for someone who's been kicked around by life. So if you enjoyed that one, you might enjoy this slightly different flavor. We're talking about Yellow Rose. Uh, Amy, what do you think of the film? <laughs> yeah, well, 
you know, what I really admire about this film is I kept expecting it to lean a little bit more into the formula. You, you, I think, I think as Angie kind of alluded to, you expect to see these familiar beats in here. And every time I was like, all right, here we go. And here's like the savior moment. And here's like the everybody's going to rally and fix her life moment. It doesn't happen. And there's an, there's an honesty that Diane uh, Paragas brings to this that I really respect. I mean, I'm from Texas, of course, and I grew up not very far from from where this takes place. And there, the authenticity really struck me. Um, I will say there's sometimes where I'm a li- I was a little bit scrambled on the lead character herself. You know, she doesn't strike you as a girl with a temper. She's incredibly sweet. She's really kind. But then sometimes she just gets into a big drama fight out of nowhere. And I'm like, okay, 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 okay. Is that for just the plot or... Or is it, you know, really necessary? But I appreciated that this walked the line between, you know, being very heartwarming and yet not ever feeling candy-coated or fantastical. And the ice scenes that we have in the film are genuinely scary, genuinely scary. They're scary in kind of the way, if anybody out there is also traumatized by the E.T. invasion scenes, they recall that in, in, a, in, um, in a shivery way. We're talking about the drama Yellow Rose, starring Ava Noblezato, and the film is directed by Diane Paragas, who co-wrote the screenplay with Andy Beenan and Annie J. Howell. The film's rated PG-13 and available in select theaters, Yellow Rose. Song Lang, a Vietnamese drama, uh, is uh, starring Isaac, uh, just goes by the first name. Uh, Leon Le is the director and co-screenwriter of the drama set in Saigon of the 1990s. Angie. So this was probably the most pleasant surprise for me of the films we watched this week. It's the only one that I immediately wanted to watch again, although I haven't yet because I've been busy watching all these other movies. It's about the, um, as you said, as you said, it's about the unlikely connection that forms between a debt collector and an opera for- performer. And I think the richness of its visuals and the quiet yearning at its center evokes something like In the Mood for Love. But the way that the two men connect over the course of an evening feels almost like before sunrise. And of course, what those two movies have in common is that it takes its time and lets those characters come into that relationship organically. One of the things I absolutely love about this movie is it has this incredible eye for detail in the design. I'm not going to pretend to be able to speak for its authenticity because I am not familiar with what Saigon looked like in that time period, but I will say it looks really lived in. It feels very 80s without banging you over the head with it. Um, and it and it it ends up looking not so much like something that was made out of a feeling of nostalgia, but almost like an old movie that was recently rediscovered. Uh, The love story is very subtle and underplayed and bittersweet. And I think that that might not, maybe some audiences who are more used to explicitly queer love stories or tired of tragic endings might be a little bit disappointed, but I think it works really well for what it is. And I was really shocked that this is a debut for a lot of the people in the movie, the lead actor. It's his first movie role and he's incredible in it. It's really subtle work. He's the kind of actor you want to watch, even when he's just sitting still and watching a play. The Isaac, who you mentioned, is a pop star, so I guess he's not really someone who's done a lot of acting before either, but the two of them have really convincing chemistry. And what brings them together is um, Kai Lung, which is a style of Vietnamese folk opera that they are both that they both have a really personal connection to. And it's not a style of theater that I was familiar with at all, but it has but the movie has such a clear reverence for the art form that it'll make you curious to explore it yourself. I think it's a it's a great movie to watch for any reason, but I think especially as a showcase for three rising talents. The film is Song Lang, a Vietnamese drama that's unrated, directed and co-written by Leon Lay, starring Isaac. Uh, the screenwriter along with Lay is Min Nok Nguyen. The film's unrated. You can see Song Lang on the Lemley's Virtual Cinema.
And let's uh, get started. We'll have to finish after our break. But Charm City Kings, a drama which is set in Baltimore, directed by Angel Manuel Soto, uh, Sherman Payne, the screenwriter. Amy, what do you think of Charm City Kings? Right. So we're in Baltimore and we have another coming of age story about a young kid who's a little bit in peril here. He's a 14 year old. His name is Mouse. And he can't decide if he wants to be a veterinarian or if he wants to join a dirt bike crime gang called the Midnight Click, which is a little bit of an eye roller, except it is the true setup of a doc that some people out there but have seen called 12 O'Clock Boys, which came out in 20, uh, 2013. I really loved that doc. And this is the fictionalized, a little bit Disney-fied version of that, you know, where Yellow Rose, I think, veers away from cliche. This movie heads straight into it, 60 miles an hour, headlong. You know, there's a few ridiculous twists in here, and everybody in Baltimore is invested in this kid doing okay. But there's a lot to talk about. I'm excited to talk about it more after the break. All right, we'll continue. We're talking about Charm City Kings, a drama set in Baltimore from director Angel Manuel Soto. We're joined by Amy Nicholson and Angie Hahn as our critics on Film Week here on KPCC back in just one minute. So good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle, joined this week by critics Angie Hahn and Amy Nicholson. We're right in the midst of reviewing Charm City Kings, a film set in Baltimore, directed by Angel Manuel Soto, Sherman Payne, the screenwriter of the film. Angie, what do you think of Charm City Kings? Yeah, as Amy referenced, it's a it's based on a documentary called Twelve O'Clock Boys, and it's also but it also has this kind of cliched a little bit cliched coming of age story on top of it. And it feels almost like the movie, it feels almost like the first half is more interested in the subculture to the detriment of its focus on the boy. And then it feels like the second, the second half, the reverse is happening. But that said, I found it really compelling throughout the lead actor is really good. But one actor I also wanted to highlight is Meek Mill, who's a rapper. So he's not really an actor. This is his acting debut, but he plays the former leader of the Midnight Click, and it's a performance that radiates strength and gentleness at the same time. And above all, he's just such a presence. When he's around, you want to sit up and pay attention. So I hope we get to see more of him. Yeah, Amy. I wish the different. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Angie. I was just going to say, I wish the different elements of the story had melded together a little bit better. But I think it's still a really engaging story worth watching for the performances and also for a chase scene that seems like it could be out of Fast and the Furious. Amy, it sounds like you, you were saying it a little bit formulaic, but what about those performances? You know, the ones that also really popped out to me besides Meek Mill are the friends of a young kid. You know, there's like, um, two young actors, Danielle uh, Tremaine Hansley and Kesey Curtis. They're really charismatic. And in fact, I kept saying like, oh, I wish this movie was more about them. I really... I really want to just hang out with those guys and watch them. I appreciate that the director, um, Angel Manuel Soto, that he hired really young, com- like, truthful-sounding kids. With, like, there's even little jokes in the movie, like, somebody brings up Karate Kid, and these kids are so young, they're like, we don't really care about that movie. Even Tupac. Like, they bring up Tupac, and the lead kid says, ah, he died a million years ago. And so it feels fresh in that way, which I, um, I enjoyed that about it a lot. Well, one thing I was wondering, it's it's rated R, and yet it's, you know, teenagers are kind of at the center of this. And so who who's the audience, Amy? Um, I think older teenagers, honestly. I think this movie would hit really well with the 14-year-olds like Mouse. And I think I could see people, you know, just kicking back with their friends at a pizza and being like, we're going to put on some corn that we enjoy. Yeah, you see it that way, Angie? 
Yeah, I think older teens will probably find a lot to respond to, but I think also adults. I mean, obviously, I'm an adult, and I saw it, and I I thought thought it was really bittersweet to look back at these kids. Charm City Kings, rated R, and it's on HBO Max. The romantic comedy A Rainy Day in New York is the delayed release from writer-director Woody Allen. Uh, Timothy Chalamet, Elle Fanning, and Selena Gomez are the stars. Angie, what do you think of A Rainy Day in New York? It is a Woody Allen movie that feels like a Woody Allen movie, but not one of his better ones. It's a very slight comedy about this college couple. Gatsby Wells is a Timothy Chalamet character because he's the kind of character who has that kind of name. And uh, Elle Fanning plays Ashley Enfield, I believe is her name, and they head to New York for the weekend and then run into some unexpected complications. They split up and have these separate adventures that that help them get to know themselves a little bit better. And it's a germ of a good idea because I think that's very much what college is. If I had had a weekend like that, maybe I would have wasted less time in college with unsuitable men. But the execution is so blah to me. It feels like Woody going through the motions, uh, hitting all his usual Woody Allen things. There's even a whole thing where the Timothy Chalamet character likes to walk in the rain and the Elle Fanning character doesn't. And this is a red flag that they're a mismatch, which is straight out of Midnight in Paris. So it feels like someone doing a Woody Allen ripoff, except, of course, it is Woody Allen doing a Woody Allen ripoff. A rainy day in New York. Writer-director Woody Allen rated PG-13. It's on Fandango now and on Voodoo's streaming platform. The documentary Totally Under Control is directed by three uh, directors, uh, and it's about response to the COVID-19 outbreak. So this is like an instant documentary, right, Amy? Very much, very much. You even in the opening minutes see them inventing a thing they call the COVID cam that they drop off at the subject's houses. It seems like they have figured out a way to direct just through the camera. I mean, well, here we are making a radio show (laughs) Um, separate from the studio. But yeah, it feels like an instant retelling that I I think will have a lot more um, value years from now when we're trying to trace back what happens. But you see these directors interview Major people, people who were former heads of the CDC, people like um, the New York Times White House reporter Michael Shear, who just tested positive for COVID last week, um, talking about what happened and what went wrong. And while uh, in, the, in the first half you feel like you sort of know a lot of the information, there's still bits in here that I found really enraging and glad to hear people talk about. There's a man who makes um, domestic N95s here in, in America, the only person who's doing domestic pro- um, protect- production of those masks. He's a Trump voter, and he was trying to raise the alarm to this administration in January that we don't have enough masks, and nobody was really calling him back. And so hearing from those people is really valuable. I enjoyed a little bit of a comic detail where we meet the doctor who invented um, or was trying to promote hydroxychloroquine, if I say that correct. But it really just brings it straight up to the present. I mean, it includes the Woodward tapes. It includes, you know, a shot of the red smoky skies over San Francisco. And it wraps so recently that the closing title card is... The day after we wrapped, the president was diagnosed with COVID. That's oh how my goodness. This is this an feels. instant doc. That's amazing. <laughs> it's instant. Totally under control. The documentary. Angie, what do you think? I think like Amy said, this is absolutely enraging in a good way, or at least in an effective way for the purposes of the documentary. I wanted to throw things at my TV. It the beginning of it felt a little bit to me like I don't know if you guys have watched rewatch contagion recently but you know how in the beginning parts of that you feel like there's this feeling that you have of oh no i know how terrible it's going to get for these people and they don't know it yet and so the beginning feels a little bit like that 
But then as it goes on, it becomes more and more upsetting as you see so many points where the where the U.S. could have pivoted and done something that would make the situation better. And then instead just continued blundering on and screwed things up for everyone. And that's why we are recording this remotely. And a lot of it will be familiar to people who are glued to the COVID news in the spring. But I think it's interesting to look back with the benefit of hindsight and see exactly how things went wrong and to go a little bit deeper into some of the stories that you may have missed in the deluge of news over the past few months. The documentary is totally out of control about COVID-19 and the outbreak. It's unrated. It's directed by Alex Gibney, Ophelia Hartunian, and Suzanne Hillinger. And you can see the doc on Lemley's virtual Cinema, and it'll start streaming next week on demand at Apple TV Plus, Amazon Prime, Fandango Now, Google Play, YouTube, and Vudu. And then in uh, just over a week, it'll be on Hulu, the documentary totally under control. The comedy The War with Grandpa stars Robert De Niro and Uma Thurman. Tim Hill directs, Tom J. Astle and Matt Ember are the screenwriters. Amy? Yeah, well, Tim Hill is a very successful big family film director. He's made Garfield, he made Alvin and the Chipmunks, he made the Grumpy Cat movie, he made the SpongeBob movie, and now he makes a movie where Robert De Niro gets into a prank war with his grandson and flashes people and has, like, cement beards glued to his face and and does everything that you are, you, I'm sure audiences in the 70s are like, that De Niro guy, he's really going to go places. Um so the setup here is that De Niro is an older retiree. He's a widower. He, uh, in the opening scenes, gets into a gigantic fight with the grocery clerk because he doesn't like self-checkout. And when he starts throwing, he, he rips open a yogurt cup like a grenade and throws it at a grocery clerk, which makes his daughter Uma Thurman be like, you have to move into our house. We, we need to keep an eye on you. But to move into the house, he evicts his grandson, who then has to live in an attic that's covered with rats. And it has a leaking roof. And so the kid tries to declare war on notebook paper. He slides it under his door. And then it's just a prank war that is on. And what's happening, of course, is that the kid has friends who are egging him on. Robert De Niro is egged on by Christopher Walken and Cheech Marin, who are just like, you got, you can't like let this kid bully you around. It is incredibly dumb um, in every sort of way. There's a trampoline dodgeball fight. Jane Seymour is in here as a love interest. Again, there's a lot of scenes where uh, Robert De Niro flashes his son-in-law. But I will say there's an inventive funeral prank at the middle before this film turns into like chaos at a Christmas-themed birthday party that I really appreciated. For one moment in this film, I laughed very, very hard. <laughs> All right. The, did that make it worthwhile? Uh, well, it depends on your tolerance for seeing Robert De Niro flash people. The War with Grandpa, starring De Niro with Uma Thurman, Tim Hill directing its rated PG, and in select theaters. The science fiction horror film Black Box uh, is directed by Emmanuel Osei Kufour Jr. The film stars Mamadou Ache and Felicia Rashad. Angie, what do you think of Black Box? I think it's they're trying to sell it a little bit as a horror movie, but I would categorize it more as a psychological or sci-fi thriller. It centers around uh, Nolan, Mamadou Achi's character, trying to recover his memories after a car accident that leaves him with amnesia. So he goes deeper and deeper into his subconscious. But while he's doing that, he's being haunted by something and he doesn't know what it is or why it's happening to him. And it's a little hard to talk about because I think some of the most interesting parts of this movie are buried under some very big plot twists. 
um, which also means that it kind of gets off to a slow start where you can kind of see where it's probably headed before the movie is ready to get there. But once it does, I think it takes off. It feels very Black Mirror to me in its look and feel and tone but more like the early good seasons of Black Mirror than the later worse ones. And it's also got uh, some shades of Get Out and Inception as we get into his subconscious. But as in Black Mirror, it's not the technology that's the problem. It's plain old human nature. And I think that Mamadou Ache especially gives, does a really good job of what, is, what turns out to be a really challenging role. And he's a lot of what makes it really interesting for me. Black Box, uh, the psychological sci-fi film Amy. Yeah, Mamadou Ache is an actor I've been trying to keep an eye on um, for several years. Like, whenever he pops up, I think he brings a lot of credibility. But I think he's stuck here in a film that is shot so straightforward that it kind of just feels like a lifetime drama where sort of things are happening in the margins and it never feels that really scary or that riveting to me. You know, I, I it there's almost kind of a comatose nature to the film itself where I wanted to just electrify it and wake it up and make it go to its own hypnotic scan where it would stop trying to be Get Out. Um, there's a question at the center of the film that the director is trying to ask, you know, like, who are we deep on the inside? Like, do we know ourselves? Do we want to know who we are deep inside? And when it gets to those questions very late in the film, it's pretty lovely. There's a one really lovely scene towards the end, but it, for me, it was a little bit too little too late. Black Box is the film, again, from director Emmanuel Osei-Kufour Jr., uh, Wade Allen Marcus, uh, Stephen Herman, and uh, the director Osei-Kufour Jr. are the screenwriters. Black Box is unrated, and it's on Amazon Prime Video. Also on Amazon Prime Video, the horror film The Lie, which is written and directed by Vina Sood. Amy? Yeah, this is the kind of modest little thriller that I actually really like, where one awful thing happens at the beginning of the film, and then somebody in the middle of panic makes this impulse decision, and then things just get worse, and then every decision they make after that just makes things worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And what happens here is that you have these two divorced parents, um, Peter Sarsgaard and Marie Enos, who's just such a fabulous actress. And... Um, they have, they're sharing custody of their 15-year-old daughter, who's played by Joey King. Also, she's a, tr- a tremendous actress. And as Peter Sarsgaard is driving his daughter to a weekend ballet camp, they pick up one of her friends, and then her friend doesn't survive to the end of the ride. Um, and so they decide to hide their involvement in what happened, and then everything just goes insane. Um there, there's a, the film is a little bit too controlled. I feel like there's this color palette here that's just like relentlessly gray with like occasional shots of pink. I mean, this film is so gray that in one scene there's a lemon in the fruit bowl. And I was like, a lemon. I was so excited to see any sort of color. Um, and it doesn't explore every single avenue that I thought it would. But there were good moments in this film where I was yelling at the screen like, you do not want to do that. What are you doing? What are you doing? And I appreciate the very last twist of the gazillions of twists that are on here. We're talking about The Lie, the horror film starring Mireille Enos and Peter Sarsgaard. Uh, Angie, what do you think? While Amy was yelling, what are you doing? I was at home yelling, yes, you are terrible people, because the characters in the movie keep being like, are we terrible people? And I keep being like, yes, you're horrible, awful people. 
there's a germ of an interesting idea here about privilege uh, that's only glancingly touched upon and also about parenting and I guess in particular helicopter parenting since the parents in this movie tend to veer between borderline neglectful and completely overbearing, which is underlined by that uh, very cruel ending that Amy referenced. But I think it gets buried under these really preposterous twists. It reminded me of that episode of Futurama where Leela kills someone and then she just continues killing people to cover up that crime where just things just stack up on top of each other until it becomes pretty ridiculous. So, you know, I had some fun with it, but I, at least for me, it's not engaging enough to hold my attention for 90 plus minutes. I wish that it had either been an hour or a whole miniseries so that we could go deeper into it. We're talking about the horror film The Lie, starring Mireille Enos, Peter Sarsgaard, and Joey King. Venus Sood is the writer-director. Uh, the film's rated R, and The Lie is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, so our thanks to our Film Week critics this week, Amy Nicholson and Angie Hahn. And coming up, KPCC's John Horn is going to talk with Julie Taymor, noted director not just of films, but of stage productions as well. Remember, her in the Lion King. She's the director and co-writer of The Glorious, which was released this week, uh, takes a look at the life of activist Gloria Steinem. That's all coming up with KPCC's John Horn and director Julie Taymor. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. Wonderful to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Earlier, we heard our critics review the biopic about Gloria Steinem, The Glorious. And now, the director of the film, Julie Taymor, is going to tell us about the making of the film. She's probably best known for her stage adaptation of Disney's The Lion King, a five Tony Award winner from 20 plus years ago. But in the intervening decades, she's made a name for herself with big screen directing, including 2002's biopic Frida, the 2007 musical drama Across the Universe, which celebrated the Beatles' music. And Tamer's latest film is also a biopic uh, depicting the life of Gloria Steinem at various points with different actors playing her at different parts of her life. In a recent interview with KPCC's John Horn. She said when she first started filming the movie back in 2016, she wanted a major scene of it uh, to be an election night watch party where the real Gloria Steinem is able to respond to the first woman president being elected. As we know, that's not how the election turned out. And that changed not only the movie that she ultimately made, but also the message she wanted to send. Well, you know, there's a beautiful moment after that election. Instead of having that night that I wanted, because there's a lot of documentary footage used in the in the um, uh, movie, I found this article that Gloria wrote, which is in the movie. She's typing there in her apartment. And it really is a phenomenal way to assess what happened, which is that Hillary's loss actually could be seen as a jumping board for many other women. And I think two years ago, we saw this, that the the road to this glass ceiling, to break this glass ceiling or the road to the White House for a woman is not one road, it's a relay race. And so Hillary passed on the baton, the torch, whatever. When, when people ask Gloria Steinem, is she passing the torch? She says, no way, I'm just lighting more. I'm keeping my torch, which is true. 
You said you、um, didn't think her book, My Life on the Road, was a movie. What were the obstacles and what was the ultimate solution that you think made it filmable? It's not a drama, the book. It's a,、um, a series of chapters on various parts of her life over 80 years, but it's not linear, it's not dramatic. You have elements of her canvassing for one senator or another, of her dealing with Ms., of her being in taxi rides, which I adored. I love the taxi rides and I wanted to put them in, but the movie would have been better as a you know, television series if I did that. But it was, not, it was not drama, it was a road book. And road movies for women are rare, if any. There's the Thelma and Louise movie, and that, as we all know, did not end well. So、um, I thought, well, I'm going to make a road picture. I'm not going to focus on the love story of Gloria with one man or the other man. The men, yeah, they're there. They're in the background. A few of them are there. But this is a love story between the women she worked with. This is women supporting women. It's not a cat fight like we see all the time on television. It's not that there isn't conflict. Of course, there's conflict. But mostly it's Gloria and these extraordinary women, whether they're Flo Kennedy, Dorothy Pittman Hughes, Bella Abzug, Wilma Mankiller, Dolores Huerta, those are the five famous ones. And I must note that what I also loved about the book was that women of color are very profoundly at the forefront of the women's movement, always. That they have not been heralded, that they have not had their stories out there. Well, that's typical, isn't it? And Gloria wrote this book, so that's why it's called The Glorias, and I have four or five. But the main thing for me was I wanted to do this 80 years, but I needed something that would unify the whole、uh, journey. So, what I did, which is what I do mostly when I'm a director and designer, is I look for the ideograph. I look for the abstraction of the whole. Like, if I were to boil this down to one brush stroke, one image, what would it be? And that's when I figured out the Greyhound bus. Because for Americans in particular, it's an archetypal image of travel, the Greyhound bus. And I thought, well, this is a road picture. So the road with the yellow slash line, the highway that keeps going and going all directions, this will be the constant glue that will take these disparate journeys to India, to Minneapolis, Houston, Miami, New York. And we will keep returning to the bus where you will meet. The four Glorias at different times. And sometimes they're sitting together and having conversations. And this, this solution to、um, some, of the story, some of the writing that Gloria had done, you know, she writes in the first person in her book, and she constantly is questioning what she did in the past. Like, why didn't my mother do this? Or what would have happened if I hadn't done that? Why didn't I answer these Saul Bellow and Gay Talese in the taxi when they were so insulting? And I took what were these interior monologues and made them exterior dialogues between the Glorias, the various Glorias. And this allowed for it to be funny, moving, dramatic, and questioning. When I came up with this idea of the multiple Glorias and told this to Gloria, she said, How did you know? And I, and I said, How did I know what? In the movie, her father tells her travel is the best education. It's the only education, really. And you focus on a trip that Gloria Steinem takes when she's younger to India. And there, the caste system that suppresses women is in plain sight. 
And there's a caste system, obviously, in the United States that is also suppressing women, but it's not quite as visible, even though it's there. Was that also part of your organizing principle to look at caste, both kind of visible and invisible in both both India and the United States? Well, I think there's a moment where Gloria and Flo Kennedy are at a um, press conference. Can you address this new term, sexual harassment, and whether you've ever experienced it? And Flo, could you talk about racism in America? I just want to point out that you directed a question to me about universal womanhood and to Flo about the condition of being black. Do you think Flo is unable to answer a question about the condition of being a woman? Miss Kennedy, what do you have to say about that? And Flo Kennedy says, played by Lorraine Toussaint, Racism and sexism are intertwined. They cannot be uprooted separately. And I think that is very much shown in this, uh, that these two things, which are our caste system, this is what you're referring to, which is that it's a patriarchal structure. It's There's a white patriarch- patriarchal structure. And so in that... Um, the, the, in the ranking, women are below and uh, not just African-Americans, but people of color are, are below that. So imagine being female and being black and being Indian and being Hispanic. So what we have here is a real reason why these forces join together and can join together. And to say enough already, as Gloria says, we're linked, not ranked. You know, she's She's very inspired by Native American talking circles and the circle and this kind of non-linear up to the ceiling patriarchy. And what I loved really, and what I love most about Gloria is her ability to listen. Did you like in India, the, when we come back to India in our full circle at the end, she's, she's doing a book reading of her book, My Life on the Road, in a, in a bookstore in, in New Delhi. And the woman who's hosting it is very educated friend of hers that she met, Indian woman, says, Gloria Steinem Steinem has been known as a celestial bartender. And that is so stunning because it does feel celestial because she's able to make things happen. On the other hand, what a bartender does is listen. He listens to the complaints and the grievances. And and in, in that listening, just like she learned when she was a young girl and was in this cast, Uh, at this village that had caste riots, she saw how speaking and realizing that you're not one, that everybody is going through this, is how you expiate those pains and make action. That's how you start to become an activist. So I I learned so much from the book and I thought, you know, my, my mom's a political person. She wrote a book called Running Against the Wind. And Gloria knows my mother. My mother was a big, profound leader in the Democratic Party in Massachusetts. She's 99.9 now. But I watched her suffer. I canvassed her with her when I was 12 years old and she was running for state representative. And women would come to the door and, and slam the door in her face or say, go home and take care of your children. And my mom would say, here's my daughter right here. So there were a lot of reasons to get behind this film for me. KPECC's John Horn in conversation with The Glorious director, Julie Taymor. They have more conversation coming up. We'll be back in just a minute. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPECC and the KPECC app. I'm Larry Mantle. 
KPCC's John Horn and director Julie Taymor are in conversation on Film Week about her new biopic, The Glorious. It depicts the life of Gloria Steinem at different points along the way. Uh, we continue with their conversation as Taymor explains what part of Steinem's life spoke most personally to her. I would probably say that that I'm 20 years younger, but I, like Gloria, went to Asia when I was uh, 21 on a traveling fellowship to Indonesia, Eastern Europe, and Japan. I went for three months and stayed four years. And I think that there is something about both of us that has a, has a feeling of openness or excitement about, about living in our, uh, not living in a comfort zone, but living in an uncomfortable zone where you're being stimulated by new experience and new people and challenged. And I, I know that she's that way. She had no problem since she was a little girl crossing over racial or gender, well, I would say racial barriers or cultural. She would, went on that third class train in India. And she, as she, they, they say to her, I love this, the Indian women say to her, why aren't you traveling in a car like all the other Westerners? And she said, if I was in a car, I wouldn't really be in India and I wouldn't have met you. That's the way I feel. I mean, I've lived in Asia for many, many years. I've traveled through, I wrote Juan Darien, we did, Elliot Goldenthal, the composer and I did while we were living in Mexico. Uh, we did Frida, you know, many, many at Lion King, I've been to Africa. Many of the things that inspire me aren't really my own neighborhood. The closest thing to my life was across the universe because I'm the little girl in that. I'm the little blonde girl. I'm not blonde, but I'm the little girl watching my parents go through the 60s with my older brother and sister. So there's a lot of actually real material from what they experienced. And famously in Ms. Magazine, she published uh, the names of people who had had abortions, including herself, Billie Jean King, Nora Ephron, Julie, Judy Collins, Susan Sontag. They all joined in. They, yeah. they, they signed on. I feel like... What Flo Kennedy says in that scene, somebody, one of the editors, the older woman says, you know, if we publish this, it's illegal. You know, won't that get us into trouble publishing the names of all these women who have had abortions? Because back then it was illegal. This was before Roe v. Wade. And Flo Kennedy says so smartly, when one person does it, it's illegal. When hundreds do it, it's a movement. And I, I think that should be loud and clear. And I think, again, because Roe v. Wade will be on the chopping block very shortly. Gloria Steinem worked as a journalist. She worked at places like the New York Times, New York Magazine, where the people around her, not surprisingly, mostly men, uh, treated her poorly. But what's also fascinating in the film is the archival footage you find and show of people judging her. People like Harry Reasoner, who's <laughs> talking about Ms. Magazine on 60 Minutes and says it's sad. And he says it'll fold in just a few issues. David Susskind, who is saying I'm not sure if I should kiss her or hit her. And Larry King says Gloria Steinem should rot in hell. Well, he doesn't say it. I'm the sorry. woman on his show. A, okay. a woman on Larry King's show said s says to Larry King she should rot on hell. When you come across that archival footage, what is your reaction to it? And why is it important to place it in the film? Well, I used uh, documentary footage in those cases and also for the March on Washington and the women's the Houston Women's Conference because you can't get better than the real thing, and you also can't recreate twenty million people or twenty thousand people here. So I I with my editor and my post team and the wonderful archivalists who found this material, 
we were able to blend and move in and out. And I think it's very exciting. So, uh, but when I saw the footage of Nixon laughing about women wanting to be called Ms., it just, you know, you you just get shocked to have an actor play Nixon or an actor play Phyllis Schlafly for that matter. I, you know, I could have had an actress play Phyllis Schlafly, Kate Blanchett played Phyllis Schlafly, but I actually think the real woman at that moment and Senator Dornan, when you have uh, Congress, real- Congressman Dornan, yes. I mean, excuse me, Congress, I, you're better than I am about this. Congressman Dorman, Dor- Dornan, it's more shocking. And I, and I, I grew up with Harry Reasoner thinking, wow, he's a reasonable, nice guy, smart, father knows best, all the feelings we get with these, you know, these guys as our newscasters. And then the, patronizing tone he has for these women is just it's you're, you're gobsmacked i mean everybody who's seen is like oh, we just took it for granted i would we call it i would call it venom i wouldn't call it paid i would call it venom it's it's hateful his? oh yeah. his was hateful yeah i mean it is patronizing but you're right it's venomous patronizing right. um it's it's worse uh and it really is shocking and i couldn't find david suskin on uh, the real David Suskin, but those are his words because it was written down. So an actor had to do that. But the woman saying Gloria Steinem should rot in hell is the real woman. Mm-hmm. We we had her recording and we. I said, I don't, I'm not even going to replace that. No one will know, but I really, that is the voice, you know? So it's great to use the documentary. And we, because we were also shooting taxis in all these cities and the entire film was 90% of it was shot in Savannah, we had to put green screen outside the taxi windows, the different era taxis we had. And then we had to use documentary. We didn't fake Boston at the time. That's real footage. We found real footage of New York and put, put it outside the windows, the era, the right era. Let me ask you this last question. Uh, the film ends uh, at the Women's March following the inauguration of Donald Trump. And Gloria Steinem says the path up is always a jagged line. If you were to place this film and what's happening with Supreme Court in that context, the path up is always a jagged line. What gives you reason to be optimistic and that it's not one step forward and two steps back? Well, Gloria is the one who's optimistic. <laughs> She's constantly, she says, let's look at the upside of the downside. She probably feels this is going to mobilize people more, the 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 backwards line that, that people will get out there. And she firmly believes, I just read it somewhere that she says, you know, this is just going to get out the vote more because people have to be awakened to the danger of who's going to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So at any rate, I, I do feel if it all goes South, which has, you know, possibilities that the people will rise up, that they will, that there will not, that this, even if there is a conservative uh, Supreme Court of people who are supposed to be there for the rest of their lives, there will be a certain point where the young people of this country will say they don't represent us and it's time to get rid of this institution or, or put more people on it. So I, I, I love that Gloria is always positive. She was very close friend or friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They're about the same age. And uh, Ruth's quiet, beautiful powerful fierceness, but in her quiet, understated way, Gloria has that as well. It's an amazingly powerful tool without being in your face, without being aggressive and me, 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 like some people we know. (laughs) She, well, maybe because as a woman in power, that's what they learned, that that's the way that you get people, men to listen. 
And they do. And Gloria has an extraordinary uh, history of that, of laughing through some of, you'll see it in the movie, right? She laughs when she says things that might be a little prickly. Uh, she She's she's not a ball breaker, but I mean, I do a whole scene about that, you know? I'm, uh, it's very hard to describe, but that tornado is very much about how, how can you be critical and not be seen as a witch. <laughs> That's director Julie Taymor, talking with KPCC's John Horn about her new biopic, The Glorious, on activist Gloria Steinem's life. Uh, It's available for free on Amazon Prime Video. If you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, you can also rent or buy the film on multiple digital platforms. So good to have you with us on Film Week. For our critics, I'm Larry Mantle. Have a great weekend.